0: Welcome to Peterson's Bow Hunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bow hunters. From the latest archery equipment and expert shooting advice to proven bow hunting tactics and the sport's biggest personalities, we've got you covered. Now, here's your host, Editor Christian Berg. All right, welcome back to Peterson's bowhunting radio we are the voice of bowhunting and today we're connected to the great bowhunting state of iowa i've got a direct hardwired landline connection with none other than mr john dudley uh host star shooter extraordinaire from knock on mr dudley
1: welcome to peterson's bowhunting radio well, yeah, you need, you need to like introduce people into the UFC ring because you always have these introductions that are that are quite uh, quite elevated. And definitely make me feel like I have a big expectation on this podcast now.
0: I can do better than that. And now, in the left corner, (laughs) weighing in at 224 pounds, standing 6 foot, 3.5 inches tall, from Indianola, Iowa, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. John Dudley.
1: How's that? That was good. That was real good. Yeah, solid. I
0: don't know if I had your measurements quite right, but I think I was pretty close. Yeah, you were you
1: undersold me, but I'm down with it. Yeah, that's good. Did
0: I short you half an
1: inch and five pounds? Yeah, about you shorted me an inch, but no, it's are good. you six
0: four and a half?
1: Six. but if I don't wear shoes, I'm probably just under 6'5", but that's all right. That's why I always feel so small when I'm with you. (laughs) That's why I always have to wear... no rubber boots when i hunt just so that you can't see that my pants are too short
0: <laughs> well listen man uh it's good to have you on the show and those of you uh who are listening who are regular readers of the magazine certainly are familiar with john he's been a, a regular contributor for us for the last several years uh for those who don't know john um uh, You know, most of what you write about for us has to do generally with bow hunting, a little bit on the technical side of archery, which we're going to talk about now. But, you know, you come from an interesting background because as a kid, you were really, really into a variety of ball sports. And so you had that athletic background and then you kind of discovered archery and went the competitive route. Just give me, you know, a brief, I don't want to spend, we could spend a whole day talking about all your competitive accomplishments, but just give folks an idea of where you're coming from, you know, as a, as a athlete and as a competitor and, and how, you know, you got to be uh, where
1: you are today. Well, I think I've just always really enjoyed the structure of sport and the structure of like having something to train for. And then, you know, I've always really liked the atmosphere of team atmosphere, but I've also really liked teams where you, where you kind of perform as an individual, so to speak. So there's been a lot of different ones over the years. I mean, I've, you know, I've played basketball, baseball, football, you know, I've played tennis, for a while and Coach telling you What you had to do in practice I mean you just had to kind of devote yourself to shooting And honestly my competitive Side really came out From the fact that I was There was a few opportunities as a bow hunter Where I waited the whole year for for an opportunity and then I just totally blew it and it just got to the point where it's like I need I need to be able to be the best archer I can be so that I can be the best hunter I want to be and you know that's kind of where the competitive archery side came from was uh you know I went to like a a 3d course uh one of the first kind of 3d courses way back in the I guess it would have been like early 90s or so, and, um, yeah, just did so bad at it that I, you know, my competitive drive made me want to be better, so then just started really getting into competitive archery, and within within really a few years of shooting my first 3D course, I was already um, kind of at a professional level, just fully jumped head first into working for an archery shop, and, um every single day and trying out a lot of different gear and making a lot of mistakes and learning to shoot or release the proper way and then um, yeah I mean fast forward to you know I guess yeah so you ended <laughs> up you ended up then
0: obviously doing very well competitively you were on some national teams you've probably you know you've shot a lot of World Cup type events uh, Pan Am
1: games so you know. No, you well, really? not Pan Am Games. Oh, sorry. But. Sorry. <laughs> what did you do? well yeah so with compounds it's different like Pan Am games the recurves are allowed there just mainly because they're an Olympic format but the Pan Am games used to never allow compound bows until um, recently and now compounds are actually allowed there um, in the Asian games so um, which is a good sign for compound archery possibly working its way into Olympic style or you know into an Olympic format but um, yeah any of the world cup events um i shot professional 3d i shot professional field archery i shot you know with the u.s teams world cup events world championships internationally um all that kind of stuff so i've shot in almost every single format um But the reality is, out of all the formats that I competed in as an archer, it was really all revolving around, how do I have the most accurate hunting bow? And that's pretty much the way it all went, was, you know, developing... Proper form, technique, really learning the, the infinite or infinite details of fine-tuning your setup um, to where your accuracy is—you know, your extended range is is greatly improved and. Your ability to um, monitor your mistakes, or have have knowledge of you know I missed this direction, what would cause that? You know, all that stuff is super relative to the to the bow hunter. And you know, I was really lucky enough as a bow hunter to you know my the person that really coached me through the majority of my time in the woods was my uncle from down in Mississippi. And my Uncle Kenny is like most, uh, southern bow hunters. They're down there chasing some of the leariest, spookiest animals around. So they, they're Really, their skill set to be able to shoot a mature deer is, is arguably among the best in the states because they're, they're hunting animals that are so skittish that you just start to learn all these precautions and you learn the importance of not putting any type of imprint on the fact that you're there. And, you know, you just have to learn to be sneakier, I think. And obviously, then when you move, like when I move here to the Midwest, um, I think the just because there isn't that kind of pressure you know our seasons are shorter um we don't have you know you can't go out with a with a rifle the majority of the season you know our gun seasons our gun season here is only a few weeks long so i think just not having that continual pressure of the gun hunters um just really changes that attitude of the animals and you know the further like for me the further i get to like remote places it seems like kind of the less the less alarmed the the deer or elk naturally are you know you go way up into northern alberta and call elk and they respond totally different than an elk that's in Colorado that people are calling to you all the time. You know, it's kind of the same concept. So I've taken really what I learned on the competition archery side and took what I learned from being a redneck hunter in the South to now, you know, being here in the, in the Midwest and, uh, being pretty, pretty dang accurate with a bow. And that recipe is a pretty good one.
0: Yeah, and that's what I want to, you know, that's what I really want to dive into today. It's funny, you know, hearing you talk about that because I was driving into the office this morning and I was thinking about this interview and, uh, you know, I got to thinking about something that I think about, you know, from time to time as, as a bow hunter um, you know and it's something I think that most of us can relate to And uh, when I say us I mean uh, not necessarily you and the you know the John Douglas and the Randy Almers of the world but the regular the regular guys um, is that there's been so many times in my own bow hunting life that I feel like I've been a, a really good hunter and not necessarily a really good killer and what I mean by that is there's lots of hunts that I can remember where I feel like my instincts were good. Um you know, I was in the right place at the right time, uh, I did the right things, I got close to an animal that I wanted to kill, but I didn't necessarily end up killing that animal because, uh, you know, I did something wrong, whether it was related to my equipment or the execution of my shot, and that's really, I think, you know, where we're going to go today, is, and what you're saying is that... Um, you know capitalizing on those opportunities is really what separates you know the, the good or average bow hunters from the great ones and as i've improved over the years i think now you know that i'm probably more efficient and effective you know than i was years ago i now look at other hunters and think to myself you know that they don't necessarily put in you know, the the time and effort and attention to detail that they ought to you know, one thing, just to jump over onto the, the gun side of things, John, I hear so much here in Pennsylvania, as you know... There's a very strong rifle hunting tradition, and the rifle season is a, is a big deal uh, here in Pennsylvania, and it always kind of makes me kind of smirk every year. I, I hear, every year I hear stories from, like, several of my friends about these nice bucks that they miss while rifle hunting, and I understand that everybody's going to miss sometimes, but I'm talking about, like, you know, 70, 80-yard shots in the clear with broadside animals. And they're missing shots with their rifle, and I think to myself... Oh how can you do that you know like if you're sighted in at 100 yards and you've got a rest and you've got time to think about it there's kind of just like no excuse for it and so if we kind of take that and i'm thinking these guys wait all year for that opportunity and the rifle season is only two weeks long and like you've got that opportunity and now you've blown it yeah we do the same thing you know as bow hunters so often and maybe we're not quite as hard on ourselves because we think well with a scoped you know center fire rifle there's no reason and you shouldn't, you know, hit your target every time and yet there's no reason that we can't do that with our bows as well, but maybe we just haven't put in the time and effort. So you've, you've got an article that you just wrote, actually just edited the layout yesterday, and this will be out uh, probably shortly after uh, this podcast goes live, about the perfect hunting bow setup. And there's really two things I want to discuss today, right? There's our equipment, and then there's us as archers. So let's start out talking about the equipment, because this is a good time of the year as we're heading into you know later in the spring and looking looking towards the summer uh you know this is the time of the year that we all ought to be making sure that everything with our bow is in perfect working order we don't have any you know failures or things that are in need of repair and if we're dealing with any kind of new equipment we've got plenty of time to get this all dialed in so um you know, let's talk about this a little bit. I know one one, you know, you really hammered on some some maintenance type things that guys don't pay enough attention to when it comes to having their bow ready for action, you know, in the moment of truth.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, right now it is turkey season and you know some guys will have bear season here in a few weeks but you know as soon as that winds down this is the perfect time of year um you know we kind of have a couple windows this coming up would be our second window of time where we can really work on our stuff or kind of iron out some bugs or do our maintenance items and then um you know right prior to turkey season that time of year, I really like. As soon as deer season's over, take a little break, and then get into um, you know doing some of that same stuff before the turkey season starts. But you know, during those little times, it's a it's a great time to be able to normally um, be able to get access to, especially like if you're going to change equipment. Um, you know, walking into your archery shop right dead in the peak of turkey season or right, you know, two weeks prior to elk or deer, you're probably less likely to find what you want. But, you know, like starting about May, June, that's a perfect time to make some changes or do some maintenance and then be able to give yourself several months to to get comfortable with that setup and really, you know, start to, start to have proper execution um, become more of a habit than something that you're. Having to train for, and you know, by doing it now, a lot of archers, you know, actually learn the importance of being an archer, not a hunter. You know, like you talked about earlier, I really feel like there is a difference between, you know, I call, you know, I don't want to um, necessarily talk about the word in a negative way, but I just feel like there's a difference between hunters and a difference in killers. You know, the killers are the guys that, um, if they go to to five different hunting camps throughout the year, um, you know, out of those five, if there was five guys in each camp, so you got 25 total hunts, you know, they're getting something all five times, where some of the other guys are, you know, probably getting something two out of the five. Um, you know, Those are the guys that, and, you know, I know maybe, you know, I know about a handful of them, like you said, Almer or Michael Waddell would be in that category, or, um, you know, I can, I can think of a few offhand, like, you know, Joel Maxfield from Matthews. Um, He was, he's, he's one of those types of guys, or Jared Lyle, um, who used to work for Trophy Taker. These are guys that just go out, and no matter where they go, they figure out a Way to get it done. And, you know, they just learn a really beneficial way of hunting, like low pressure and making it happen, but they also are always on top of their game for their equipment. And, you know, these are guys that they, right now, during this time of year, they're going to be trying different arrow shafts, different vein configurations. They'll actually put different broadheads to the test. And, you know, that's. That's what you have to do. You know, at the ATA show this year, I think I spent I think I spent about 300 bucks. <laughs> Just walking around buying uh, different broadheads that I just saw in people's booths that I didn't recognize, Mm. and I just you know I just bought a pack of all these different little broadheads I saw in like you know kind of the you know the new the new I forget what the little area is where they kind of have all the new stuff but um, innovation zone yeah yeah I like that because I find stuff that isn't necessarily a main headliner product and then I just buy a pack and. And try them and you know that's um it's really where you what where you figure out um what cool things are out there and whether they work or whether they don't work there's been a few things I've tried that that uh I really like the looks of the advertising but then once I tried them I'm like wait a minute yeah that's not going to help me as a bow hunter it's actually from an accuracy point of view that's going to hurt me so Right now is the time to do these things, you know, to do your, your small maintenance things, which I think are critical. Um, and, you know, because some of the guys that came here on my turkey hunt here just last week, you know, there's a few guys that had a few little maintenance things that they had been neglecting. And then what happens is, you know, you end up having to to make a repair or a fix while you're in a camp and that's uh kind of a well you're missing time in the field
0: yeah you're missing time in the field then if you have to spend half a day fixing your bow that's half a day off of your hunt so and so let's talk about some of this stuff okay first thing you really wanted to talk about yeah i turned
1: that in two months ago so that's totally out of my mind you gotta remind me yeah (laughs) So what my outline was i'm already like two more articles past that
0: you talked about servings Uh, you're both your end servings you know that are on your cams as well as your center servings and like just so many people have you know crappy servings that are worn out or loose or both and they don't necessarily think it's going to have that big of an impact but that's not been your experience
1: no, for sure not. And that was actually one of um, one of the issues here was someone had neglected their loop. And when they went to uh, get their loop like I wanted to replace the loop. Once I went to replace the loop, I realized okay, all the serving underneath the loop is totally separated. And at this point, if I don't just put the loop back on and just, like, let them get through these few days, then what's going to happen is I'm going to have to end up, when I retie the knock, all the serving's going to start to move, then it could, you know, impact's going to start to change, so... I ended up just kind of retying the loop on just saying listen you're better off right now just leaving this but as soon as this hunt's done this one just to replace your d loop your whole center serving is going to need to be replaced because it had separated so much from you know one being um a lower quality string off the get-go and then uh two you know just wasn't Paid attention to the fact that they had the separation there. So, um, servings are a big one, and the industry is getting a little bit better over the last few years about how cams actually chew up the, the servings, you know, and the reason there is serving um, on the ends of your strings or on the middle is obviously you're protecting the strands themselves from the wear and tear of either working around the cam as the cam accelerates or obviously, you know, grabbing a hold of the string. Um, and years ago and you probably remember back you know you go back to maybe when some of the first single cams came you know there was quite a bit of force on the cable and the cable um, was being pulled at at an angle that was quite a bit different than what the roller guards today do and you know you'd always start to have that separation about four inches up on your cable and eventually it'll separate and then once it separates and only one strand of that serving is exposed then what happen is as that wears on the side of the cam it, that one little thread will break and then you're serving unspools, and it just starts to change you know one you don't want to start to cut your string to where you know you have a catastrophe but also if that starts on spool it'll feel quite a bit different when you pull it back so there's kind of you know there's this domino effect with archery equipment to where if, if you neglect one thing and it starts to go south um, it starts to affect all these other things too along the way so yeah serving maintenance um, you know string serving itself and then the actual um, you know your strings or your D loops and maintain, making sure those are maintained properly are, are pretty key
0: you know, let's, let's talk about another thing related to center serving and that's directly related to knock fit you know I actually had a buddy over my house this past weekend because i was setting him up with a new bow uh actually set up a, a prime for him and so you know i got everything set up uh, you know got his accessories on there you know time the rest um, got his peep sight in and everything and i noticed that with the arrows that he has and that he was shooting with his old bow um the knock fit is pretty snug on his new, you know, on his new bow. When it clicks in there, it's pretty tight. Um, pretty snappy. Yeah, and that's a common, you know, that's a common issue that a lot of bow hunters have, and I think they don't really realize it or think about it. Is that you know your knocks could be fitting either too tightly or too loosely on your center serving, and the only way to address that, you know, unless you're gonna Replace all the knocks on your arrows is you need to look at getting and uh, reserving your center serving with either you know a wider gauge thread or a narrower gauge thread as the case you know may be to get your your knock fit perfect. So talk a little bit about the proper knock fit and and how to address that with your serving.
1: Yeah, well, with knock fit, what you're looking for, um, and this is this is really important um, because what happens is your knock fit starts to greatly change how your arrow comes off the string. And this is especially important for people who, um, women or kids who are shooting lower poundage. So lower poundage bows, a lot of times the string doesn't have near the tension. You know, you grab a lower poundage bow and you can kind of hold the string and you can kind of bend it back and forth Um, and then also people that take their bow and they reduce the poundage quite a bit to where you start to take the tension off the limbs and when you do that it starts to also lose string tension and if your string tension is weak the knock fit is magnified Um, the importance of it is greatly magnified depending on the tauntness of that string and what you're really wanting is is you want that arrow to click when it first goes on the serving, but then once it kind of clicks in there, you should be able to freely spin the center serving when it's inside the throat part of the knock. And if it snaps on there, but when you go to like try to spin it, it actually wants to move the arrow back and forth that's an indicator that it's too tight or when you snap it on and it kind of spreads, you can see it kind of spread your knock wider than when it's just in its normal state those are clear, those are clear signs that it's too tight and, um, you know, your, your accuracy is greatly reduced, you know, some, and it kind of,
0: tell me, you know, what are we going to see if my knocks fit too tightly,
1: how is that going to manifest itself in my arrow groupings? Well, I mean, you can in years ago, um uh, maybe you can maybe you can dig it up and kind of post it um Along with this podcast, I don't know if you could, but years ago, I did an article with you. Um, one of the first ones, I think, actually, and it was about proper knock fit or something in relation to that because we actually went out and shot. Um, if you remember, I don't know if you remember, you do so many, you probably like me, but we actually shot at a paper plate. Um, yeah, I remember and we shot- pictures of the paper plates. Yep, yep. So what we did was um, I took um, a bow and the same arrow, and I just changed the center serving diameter. So I made the center serving diameter proper, then I re-served it with a much thicker serving material, and then I re-served it with with a smaller diameter material to where the knock was you know, when you first clipped it on, it kind of barely clipped on and it would kind of slide up and down the string really easy. Or if you were at full draw, um, you know the arrow you could almost see it would be wanting to kind of go off the string as you let your bow down um, you know some people have that problem where they go to let their bow down and there's, their arrow kind of wants to come off the serving that's kind of an indicator it can actually be an indicator of too much pinch or not enough but either way those are indicators that it's not proper so what we did was we took that same bow and then we, we really um, shot at the paper plate with those three different types of um, center servings and you can really see how your groups the same shooter same bow the groups really start to change and what happens is when that arrow is too tight it actually in slow motion video it'll pull your center serving forward and it almost pulls it through until there's much pressure on it that it then finally clunks off and when it does that then the the string comes back. The string has a lot more isolation and vibration but it also quickly starts to detour um, the natural path of that arrow because it's kind of, it's almost like you're holding on to it, you know, something's holding on to it too long and then right at the last second it's finally letting go and uh, you just, you really don't want that you want it as soon as that string Stops. You want that the the forward force of that arrow to just barely have to click that that uh, knock off that center serving, and uh, your accuracy just really really goes up. Yeah. Then we've
0: all had those bows or those setups where you shoot an arrow and you go pull it out of the target and you're like, oh, there's not even a knock in this arrow. What happened to the <laughs> yeah. knock? And then you look and it's still <laughs> stuck to your string because oh, it's was yeah. so tight on yeah, there. It. I mean, the shaft is just separating from the knock and your arrow's going downrange and your knock just stays right there on your bowstring. Um, and then on the on the flip side of that, and, you know, if you've, I mean, I guarantee you pretty much every listener that's been a serious bow hunter for a while has been here. And if you haven't had this happen to you yet, make sure it never happens because there's nothing more depressing is when you have too loose of a knock. When you're at full draw, looking through your peep sight, line it up on a good buck, and you look down and you see that your arrow has fallen off your string and it's just dangling there in your rest, And you're like, oh! <laughs> ah!
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You're gonna just that's an have- case and definitely one you don't you don't want to have to deal with yeah
0: because you're screwed because you have to let down now and try and get your arrow back on your string and do all that while the deer's standing 20 yards away good luck yeah, yeah. I've been there. I've been there guilty. Guilty as charged,
1: Mr. Dudley. Yeah, well, it's easy to do. And, you know, the thing is. Um, and also, by the way,
0: one reason that happens, too, is if you get a damaged knock and you don't know it. Because a, yeah. a lot of times when you're target shooting, you're shooting tight groups, you're slapping arrows. And sometimes you'll have a knock that gets a little hairline crack. And then you don't realize that. And so you use that when you're out hunting. And that knock that's cracked a little bit. It, now that crack is going to not hold tight on the string, and, and that's when you're
1: going to get that arrow fall off at the worst moment as well. Yeah, 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 and that's something that's just equally as important, and part of actually, it should be part of your routine maintenance is really understanding the fact that when you're shooting good, you need to start shooting at multiple spots. You know, it's to, Otherwise to it sit there expensive. and crush arrows together at twenty yards. I mean, it is. It is cool, but your your risk of injury due to an arrow failure or a knock failure is greatly elevated. Um, you know the simple things like hitting a knock, but you know if you hear an arrow kind of slap together, but you don't, uh, you go down there and it's like your knock's still on, and you just kind of think, oh yeah, my knock's still on there. I mean, it's fine. And then say that knock has a small fracture in it because of the color of it you can't quite see it you know you go and put that thing through a bow and it's enough to break the knock apart and then obviously it's really uh it can be super dangerous so learning to you know if you hear arrows crack together you need to be doing a thorough inspection and you know make sure you're not if your knock is spread apart and you like go to clip it on your string and it's way too loose don't just bite it with your teeth either i've seen people do that and I just, just feel like slapping them up against the back of the head. Like, that's like 50 cents dude. It's not worth you slapping carbon through your hand for the next you know for the rest of your life you've got it in there because you had to bite this knot. not
0: even you know most guys shoot the same type of you know brand and of arrow for you know a number of years straight so I don't know like I would think well I always do what I would imagine most guys do you know when you have that stray arrow that you know like you fling into the woods or it hits a rock in the backyard and the shaft breaks i mean i'm saving all those knocks so i always have a handful of replacement knocks you know at the ready uh, over time you know there's no reason that we shouldn't have a few extra knocks you know and i carry a couple with me when i'm hunting just because you never know when you, you might need to replace a knockout out in the field or something
1: Mm-mm. oh yeah yep.
0: that's a valid point let's, uh, so let's jump over to loops now let's talk about loops because I know that's a big thing I think it's actually a pet peeve of yours you can't probably hardly stand it when you go to every event or pro shop that you visit and I guarantee you every time you go to a shoot or you're just around a, a group of bow hunters that you haven't shot with before there's some guy there uh, who's got a, a a knocking loop that is like pointing in towards the bow or sideways when the bow is at rest, and he thinks that's no big deal because when he draws the bow, it obviously comes back, you know, backwards, pointing backwards, and his peep sight comes around. But you actually are a stickler for that because you know that that loop, if it's going to rotate there toward, inward during the shot as the string is going back to fire the arrow that the loop is going to actually you know potentially hit the knock hit the shaft and you're going to just be slapping your arrow a little bit off course as it leaves the bow
1: yeah yep because it can do that um as it goes forward um as your string goes forward and it comes off the string, if your loop is naturally not pointing straight back towards you, what happens is as it goes forward, that string rotates and depending on the length of your loop, I've seen it to where the string's rotating fast enough to where the loop is actually already coming back around, hitting the back of the shaft or back of the fletching before that arrow is even coming off the string and that's going to have a huge impact on, uh, on your accuracy so you know you really want to you really want a good high quality string that allows your peep sight to be facing straight back to you when the bow's at rest along with your d-loop and then as you grab a hold of that and pull it back both of those things remain in the exact same place and come back um perfect to your eye and um you know so that's um Something that you can do easily, you know, not having a string that's spinning around as you draw it back or not having your your D-loop facing your bow. Um, And a lot of times those little things are also really important to know that are correct because they're indicators. So um, I actually talked, I told a story on a podcast that I just put out this morning. Um, I did a podcast with some of the guys that were here on my turkey hunt and I talked about a moose hunt that I did and I actually, um, accidentally cut my string while I was in the process of like kind of working in the position of where we were going to set up for this moose. Um, I accidentally had a cat quiver at the time, you know, where your broadheads are kind of in that big trough. And when I was. Kind of running or moving with my bow in my arm, I actually accidentally put my string in that trough, and I kind of like pulled it out quick, you know, and wasn't thinking that there's broadheads in there, and I had nicked my string, and I actually didn't notice it. Until the bull was coming, literally, bull was like coming to the caller, working his way in. I was in the moment of just getting ready to make my shot, and when I clipped my bow, or my when I went to clip my, my release on the string, the D-loop was facing straight away from me, and I was like, what in the heck happened? And then I looked up to the peep sight, and the peep sight was kind of facing away from me and off to the side, so I'm just like, okay, something's not right, and I started looking up and down the bow, and then sure enough, I looked up towards the top cam, and here's, you know, two strands holding my string together so it's actually um having a good quality string where everything can be in line like that you don't have to worry about stuff spinning as you draw the bow or as you shoot the bow um they're all really important and and, uh you know these are the little things that really you know we talked earlier about you know being either the hunter being a killer you know, a lot of times it's not just about how you hunt. It's not about whether or not you're better at spotting stock or something like that. It's about these small little details. You know, I don't know how many times I've gone on a hunting camp where, you know, the the guy doesn't have, you know, in the shop never set up tied knocking points. He just put a D loop on, and then from him carrying his bow around, only holding the bowstring all the time, he ended up loosening his D loop, and then, you know, he went out to make a shot and the D loop was like higher up on the string so he kinda just slid it back to where he thought it was and then that was his opportunity. Jeez. Turn your rings off, Christian. Um or you know I've had I've had times where people didn't mark their peep sights or they didn't have their peep sight tied in correctly, and just from handling their bow or handing their bow to someone or raising it up and down a tree they you know their peep sights got moved and all of a sudden next thing you know they miss a, miss an opportunity of a lifetime and they kind of go back to saying well what the heck did I do wrong and then next thing they find out crap my pe- somehow my peep totally got moved. Yeah. So, you know, all that stuff, these are the little things that really add up to whether or not you're, you know, you're going to be successful on your hunt.
0: Yeah, I mean, it just really all boils down to, you know, as you were talking about all that, I was thinking, as I often do, and you know, I'm a bit of a baseball fanatic and I coach youth baseball and I was thinking about my team and some of the things that I tell my kids all the time. Um You know, we were working with the outfielders last night just, you know, catching these fly balls, and it's like, just like you're talking about, um, you know, if your your peep sight moves a little bit or your loop is just off, it's the same thing as telling this, you know, I'm thinking about one kid – you're holding your glove sideways, and that's why all these fly balls are hitting you like in the palm of the glove, and they're squirting out. You know, you got to hold your glove upright, watch it into the basket of the glove, and squeeze that. And I tell these kids all the time, I'm like, you know, we're going to go play these games when the schedule says we have these games, we're gonna be out there for two hours. You're gonna be at practice for two hours, you know, a couple days a week. You might as well do it right. You might as well play well. You might as well catch the ball. You might as well win the game. We're going to be out there either way and I'm going to tell you something right now. It's a hell of a lot more fun to win the game and to play well than it is to lose the game and play like crap. And it's the same thing in bow hunting. You're going to be out there. You're taking a week. You're taking a week of vacation. You only get two or three weeks of vacation a year. You saved up several thousand dollars. You've traveled halfway across the country. You've spent six mornings in the tree stand in five degree weather freezing your butt off waiting for that deer to come and now He's standing in front of you. Are you gonna hold your glove sideways and shank the shot, or are you gonna watch it into the basket? You know what I mean? You gotta take care of all this stuff because otherwise, it's the same experience except for you do it well, you come home feeling like a hero, and you do crappy, and you come home feeling like I just wasted a week of my life and two thousand dollars of my money, and I got nothing to show for it except for a bad taste in my mouth because I didn't follow through on the details. Yep, it's maddening. Yep. It's maddening as a coach and it's maddening as a hunter when I've been in those. I've been in those shoes, you know, more times than I would like. So, uh,
1: yeah, yeah. And I actually, um, I don't know. I always look. Fo- I really look forward. Um, I look forward to to hunting in that type of weather. To be honest with you, I feel like I feel like there's less people out there in it and. I've, I've done really well in foul weather too. So yeah, I think all that stuff really applies, um, to being successful. And, you know, the other thing too is, um, a lot of these small little things, um, having your gear ready, even if it's not just your bow, you know, I've had, I've actually had, um, I had a, a mule deer slash elk hunt that I did one year and I did it during a year that I was moving. So I was, I literally had to pack to leave like three days after I moved here to Iowa from Wisconsin. And I couldn't, I didn't know where my packs were. Or I didn't know where like my camo was. And I was literally scrambling to try to, you know, figure out where, you know, where's my headlamp, just all this little stuff. And it ended up adding this extra like stress and it minimized my opportunity of being able to really just shoot my bow with my spare time instead of trying to find all my gear. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is a, this is also equally a great time, um, if it's not a good day to shoot, and you have some time set aside, don't be afraid to get a, a rubber tub and think about, forward about what's your first hunt. And if you're like, okay, my first hunt's going to be elk at the end of August or beginning of September, and go ahead and start throwing all that stuff um, that you can think of in that box. You know, you, you know, you've got your you've got your um, your game meat bags. You know, a lot of the small stuff. I need an extra three batteries for my headlamp. I need my headlamp. I need, you know, my knife. I need, you know, I always have some zip strips for putting my license on. You know, all this little stuff, start throwing them in that box to where... You're able to not be stressing out those few days before the season trying to get your your gear um, for the rest of the hunt. And you can spend those last few days actually getting some shots, um, some extra practice time. And all that stuff really adds up. And getting to camp, this is also a big one, being able to get to camp and... um, Just take your stuff out of your bag, and it's pretty much set up and ready to go. You know, if you've got all your stuff in the pockets where you like on your on your backpack, and you know your um, your release pouch is already on the side of your hunting pants, and just all these little small things like that, if you can just get to camp and be able to unpack right out of your bow case, and you're you're already shooting at the camp and and ready to go, it makes a huge difference on. How prepared and and kind of just your how how mentally um, into it you are, and you're not scatterbrained and up getting out into the field and you forgot your release that day I mean I've seen so much of this stuff over my course of being in hunting camps that you know it, it really just all comes down to these basics that we're talking about right now just fundamentals of being prepared on these on these critical things and doing a little bit of homework before it's actual season
0: yeah I know one thing I like to do <clears throat> most guys probably have at least a couple different backpacks Uh um, those of us who uh, are in the industry I have kind of a collection but I like to I like to keep a different pack set up for different species so like if I am going on a deer hunt I kind of have my whitetail pack and a lot of what I need you know is all in there and like you said you know everyone has kind of their system like I know where I like to keep my release and my headlamp and my grunt tube and I got that stuff and then I've got a turkey hunting pack and, and, and I like to keep that organized and uh you know if you have like a western pack and and that just kind of helps you have that comfort level and you're not always like you say you don't have to scramble to dig through all your crap and, and try and figure out where your stuff is yeah yep yeah
1: absolutely
0: um so one more thing about string loops before we wrap it up and this was something that i really hadn't heard before and hadn't thought of before personally, um, you were actually talking about how the length of the string loop can help to alleviate torque on your string and if you have especially if you're shooting a handheld release which I do um, you know you're if you rotate your hand at full draw and when you anchor you know you're you're kind of twisting that loop and if you have a short loop you're you're torquing your string a little bit and if you lengthen your D loop that actually gives you a little more distance from the string and if you rotate your hand a little bit more. It's going to lessen the the amount of you know sideways torque that you're putting on your string.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It does. Um, you, you know, and you're giving away the whole, the whole article. Well, <laughs> people know, listen. To, people listen to this to be like, "Wait, why do I have to read the thing?" Um, which isn't bad because there's
0: cool yeah. pictures. But listen, let's face it. Let's face it. Only the very best. The tip of the iceberg, the top of the pyramid, those are the guys that are getting Peterson's bull hunting delivered to their home or they're picking it up on newsstand. They're the creme de la creme, okay? I have to accept the fact that there's some other guys that just aren't 110% committed to the sport. They just want the milk for free, and so they're listening to the podcast. That's okay. I like those guys, too, so we're giving them a little something here.
1: Yeah, well... So I guess we're going to talk about it. Yeah, the length of your loop is, again, a lot of these things come down to other aspects of your bow. So certain releases are going to, are going to put more pressure on your D loop or turn it more, um, depending on your hand position or your natural style. Like some people shooting a handheld release, there's some people that really like to dig their knuckles in behind their jaw, so they invert their release perfectly vertical. And when you do that, you're twisting that D loop. So the shorter your loop is, the quicker that twist is going to start to affect your bowstring and again women use shooting lower poundage or say you're someone who bought a 70 pound bow and you backed it down to 60 pounds well your string is going to have far less tension on it as if it was totally tight so what happens if you have a too small of a d-loop you know like some of these d-loops may only be a half inch long if you're, you know, if you backed out your poundage, your string doesn't have the full tension on it, and you start to turn that release as you come to full draw, the string will actually start to bend too. And when the string bends, it starts to put pressure on the arrow because the arrow's clipped to it. So um, you really need to find a, a length to where. When you come to full draw, if you take a picture of yourself up close at full draw, you'll look and you'll see that the your loop might be twisted a little bit, but it but it's if the length is correct, you'll notice that your string is still perfectly vertical. There's not pressure on that string. And, you know, we talked earlier about other aspects, so knock pinch. So if your knock Um, or if your serving fit with the throat of your knock is very tight and then if you have your serving slipping so we talked about if you haven't maintained your serving so your serving starts to slip meaning uh, you know it can do it a couple different ways but let's just say it's slipping in the fact that it's squeezing together so it's actually pinching your arrow so what happens there we've literally got three things going on if our D loop's too short we know we're going to be twisting the string if we've backed our poundage out quite a bit on our bows to where our string's fairly loose the string is going to be getting bent then if the knock pinch is too tight it'll actually raise the front of your arrow off the rest um, or it doesn't have enough downward pressure. So if you're in a tree stand, you draw back, you point down in order to aim at a deer that's down beneath you. Um, you may not even know it, but your arrow could literally be hovering about a quarter inch off of your arrow rest. It's not even sitting on it. So there's just all these small things that start to stack up. Um, what you want to do is you want to have that proper knot fit. You want to make sure your servings aren't separated. You want to have that D loop that's just at the, you know, it's not so long that it's interfering um, with you know your speed, or if it's really too long, it can you know start to flop around a little bit. So you kind of want to not have any of that happen, and you want your you don't want to have
0: like a twenty inch
1: D loop. (laughs) I've seen I've seen five inch D loops, but I haven't seen twenty.
0: You've (laughs) seen five inches
1: oh yeah yeah i posted one on my instagram account um (laughs) flopping around like a wet noodle back there yeah yeah it was it was a guy in croatia or something so well that's how they do it
0: that's called the croatian loop
1: yeah he was trying to be creative and and uh and yeah so
0: he was shooting a 24 inch draw bow with a five inch loop (laughs)
1: Yeah, Yeah, pretty much. much.
0: Well, listen, man, you're the one who's given away the whole article. I think you just, like, added the last couple of tips from that whole piece, so... You know, right. I'm going to have to dock your payment on that one, because we've given it all <laughs> away now, and people aren't going to buy the magazine, like you said, so...
1: Uh, that's okay. Just take a I'm look not, I out. I probably haven't sent you an invoice for it anyway, so let me... <laughs> no,
0: that's very generous of you. Well, listen, man, uh, I appreciate having you on, and for those of you who are listening, I mean, gosh, we talked about a lot of little things for 45 minutes, but that's the kind of thing that separates the John Dudleys of the world from everybody else. And these guys are obsessed over all the tiny details. And if you want to be, you know, more successful, get obsessed with, with all those little things so that everything's perfect when it counts.
1: Yeah. And this is, um, you know, one topic I want to just hit on really quick is, um, you know we talked about a lot of people say is a bow you know i hear a bow is more accurate if the limbs are tightened all the way down it's really not that the bow is more accurate um but what happens is the more you reduce the poundage on a bow from its you know its maximum setting the weaker that string tension gets and when your string starts to get too loose um it's going to start potentially giving you problems in these areas that we just talked about. It's not that it's more or less accurate. It's just if your string is loose and you know, your knock pinch is too tight or if your knock fit is too tight, then that's gonna magnify that. So that's why having that little extra string tension, um, you know, just helps you um it it's not necessarily that it is truly more accurate it's kind of a loaded question you're going to be more accurate because it allows you to get away with um some of these small little tuning errors that people overlook but if you're reading peterson's bow hunting then your your hip on it.
0: Then there's no excuse, you know. There's literally
1: no excuse.
0: You can lead a horse to water, John, but you can't make him drink, you know. No. Nope. So you're given all this information and it's up to us to put it into practice. So thank you very yeah. much. I wish <laughs> you the best with the rest of the turkey season. If you've got a bear hunt coming up, good luck with that. And I'm sure that we'll be seeing much more from you in the magazine. And we will have you let's plan to get you back late summer early fall and look ahead to whitetail season i know john always does a a whitetail calendar for me for our october issue he's really good uh with putting his predictions for rutting activity he's a moon phase guy let's get you on and do a preview of whitetail season uh
1: later in the year Yeah, how did that turn out too? Did you, um, last, I know last year, the first year I I did my predictions, which is kind of a loaded, that's kind of gets a little bit scary sometimes giving someone your full predictions, but we got so many emails from people that were just like, man, I freaking put this exactly to use and it was awesome. So then we, we literally redid it this year. You're like, same thing, just update, you know, we're 2017, we're not 2016. So, I know, um, I know mine, me personally, I kind of nailed it, man. You
0: live in Iowa. You could go out on any day and kill a big buck. I mean, you got to come hunt in Pennsylvania if you want to put your predictions to the test.
1: Yeah. I'm waiting yeah. for that, actually.
0: I, I'm going to drop the gauntlet to you right now. I dare you to come film an episode in Pennsylvania. I dare you. Okay. Come kill something, dude. Come kill something. Put put it to the test. I'm not I'm not asking you to come here like, you know, your favorite week of the year or something. But come out of here. <laughs> come out of your show. Show the show the people, you know, or go down to Mississippi with your uncle and film yourself an episode if you haven't already
1: done that. Yep. Well, I mean, I'm confident I can do it. I know down in down in the Mississippi Delta where I'm from, the uh the deer have 20 power binoculars and and uh and noses like a bloodhound and they and they uh they jump through their own buttholes at the drop of a pin so i've got it done down there i think i can get it done I, i can get it done in pennsylvania but it does sound like a good episode it's tough talk but you know until you back it up
0: (laughs) it's all it is is talk (laughs) i'll back it (laughs) up all right guys john dudley knock on keep on knocking and uh we'll talk to you again soon okay buddy
1: all right see you man
0: Thank you for listening to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bowhunters. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bowhunting on your local newsstand or check us out on the web at bowhuntingmag.com.